This event was recorded live at the 2019 Edinburgh International Book Festival, a 17-day celebration of words and stories welcoming authors and audiences from around the globe. You can hear more events by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast, and watch event videos at edbookfest.co.uk and on YouTube at edbookfest. An extra edge. It has got extra bite. The reason being that his team beat mine <laughs> in the championship playoffs last season. Uh, quite, yeah, and I haven't quite, haven't quite forgiven him for it, and it really hurt, but I'll, I'll try to suppress my anguish as I invite you to join me in welcoming Chris Brookmeyer. Chris, Chris, um, t- tell us a bit about the latest one, then, the, the, the Fallen Angel. Tell us a wee bit about that. Yeah, um, well, first of all, I'd just like to say how fantastic it is to be back at the Edinburgh Book Festival. This is, it's like, this is like my birthday, <laughs> coming, to, coming to talk here. And also, what I love about it is it's such a phenomenally well-organised festival. Um, you're so well looked after, everything runs like clockwork. And you, you learn to appreciate that once you've done a few less well-organised festivals. Um, and last year, I got a whole new perspective on this, um, because I did a festival at a castle. Um, I can't say which castle it was um, in the interest of, of confidentiality but, and discretion, but I will say that it's mentioned in the first act of Macbeth. Um, <laughs> and it's not Cawdor. Um, and it was this, this, this festival at a castle, and I, I, was, I was due on at five past 11 in the morning, so I drove up, it was just after the beast from the east, and it was a freezing cold morning, but I got there in plenty of time to make sure in case there was any logistical problems. Um, and I could see this magnificent edifice you uh, know, uh, through these iron gates as I approached in my car. These suspiciously locked-looking iron <laughs> gates. I uh, drove up there and expecting them to open as uh, my yeah. car arrived, and they didn't. Yeah. Uh, and I, I thought, this isn't quite right, so I get out, and um, I thought, maybe I'm missing something, maybe I'm missing how you get in. <laughs> and I saw a, a wee uh, notice posted to... Uh, the side uh, on, on the, the fence. I went over to see in case that was the, the directions. No, it was just some statutory notice to do with licensing. And I'm looking, there's a wee gatehouse as well, and I think maybe a guy will come out. Nothing. Uh, I thought, this, this isn't looking good at all, and, and time's marching on. So I phoned the number for right. the castle, and I got uh, an answering machine. <laughs> it said, uh, the castle is closed for the season, uh, but if you'd like to come to the Crime at the Castle event and hear authors such as Val McDermott, Denise Miner and Chris Brookmeyer, uh, you know, get tickets from this website. And I remember thinking, well, ah, I'm Chris Brookmeyer. I'd, I'd, I'd quite like to, to get in here and talk. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought maybe I'm missing something. I could see a car in the grounds. Yeah. So I, I followed the, the, the castle walls uh, and then the road veered away. And I, I thought, well, this isn't right. So I came back again. Um, by this point, it's now like 15 minutes before I'm due on stage, uh, and I, I remember I went, I went into the village and asked a guy, I said, is there another way into the castle? Uh, and he said, yeah, uh, you just see down that church, there's that lane, I said, the one that looks like a car can't get down it, he says, yeah, yeah, it's going to be tight. Uh, he says, through, I said, also, is that the one with the no entry sign? He said, yeah, yeah, through, through there, uh, obviously mined out for the boiling oil, yeah. um, and sure enough, I, I get through there, Zooming up there, and there's now like 10 minutes before I'm due on stage, uh, I parked the car, ran up to this massive wooden door, 
and it's shut as well. And I'm thinking, right, I'm about to lose it, but the door opens, and uh, it's opened by this American woman and this wee guy, this wee bearded guy with loads of laminates, which is more than one name badge is never a good sign. <laughs> and the American woman said, oh, it's the elusive Mr. Brookmeyer. Oh. Uh, at which point I did very well not to Snapper. lose the place. Yeah, yeah. I said, I've been outside, you know, for like, the best part of 50 minutes by this point uh, with, with no indication of how I'm supposed to get in here. Um, and I said, you know, could you not maybe have put a sign up or something? <laughs> and, and, um, Makes it too easy. No, the, the, wee, the laminate dwarf says, uh, <laughs> he says, nobody reads signs. <laughs> and like, this is a guy who's got signs all over himself. <laughs> and I'm, 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 at this point, again, I'm, I'm just trying to know to lose the place. And uh, anyway, I, I, the, the, the woman, the American woman realised that implying that I was stupid for not being psychic was, yeah, you know, because yeah. you, you always forget something when you go to a festival, you know, you may forget your, what you're going to read, you forget your, your tickets, uh, your trebuchet, you know, your grappling hook. Because <laughs> I thought it was called Crime at the Castle and obviously I was missing the theme and the theme was clearly <laughs> that you had to storm the fucking castle. <laughs> and the, but this, this woman, she was, um, two minutes before I'm due on stage, she says, oh, um, she's trying to placate me, she says, is there anything we can do? Um, and I said, yeah, you can make sure the fucking gate's open by the time Val McDermott gets here because <laughs> she, she is much less forgiving than me. <laughs> anyway, uh, the, the, the real kicker was that uh, they tried to, to um, screw us on the VAT when we all invoiced, oh, and Denise Minor reported them to HMRC. <laughs> So that's the other, if there's any moral to take away from that, is do not fuck with Denise Miner either. Yeah. <laughs> of anyway, this is... The problem in that, in that part of the world is all these moving forests, you know. Yes, all, yes. <laughs> yes. They will not stay still, they're always trying to get to Dunsinane. To Dunsinane, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that, it's lovely to be back in Edinburgh. <laughs> <laughs> so any second now, the, light, the lights will go out and there'll be a thunderstorm, but apart from that, we're great, you know. Yeah, so yeah, I'm, I'm Fallen Angel, the angel uh, which is fallen, is, yeah. it's kind of a... I see it as... A, a cautionary tale um, against going on holiday with your extended family, <laughs> which is almost a redundant cautionary tale because most of us are, are sensible enough to know that in the first place. Um, but it, it's, it is a holiday novel. Uh, and it all takes place on holiday, and it's, it's a, about a, a young Canadian girl who has just arrived um, from Toronto to work as a, a kind of au pair and nanny for a, a couple who live in Stirling, and she's just there 24 hours when she's going to be there for the summer, but the first uh, task she's got is to go on holiday with the, the, the family, um, with their new baby. And um, when she gets there, they go on holiday to Portugal. When she gets there, she becomes obsessed with the secret history of the family that share the pool, mm -hmm. the family that occupy two villas around the same pool. And sh she, to her surprise, uh, she learns that she, she knows of the family uh, and that the patriarch of the family is a guy called Max Temple, who's a professor at St Andrews University, uh, a psychology professor, but he's best known for writing sort of pop science works, um, bit of a talking head on television and, and writing books mostly about the psychology of conspiracy theories and debunking conspiracy theories. And that's how she knows him. But the reason the family are there is he has recently died. And this is a, a kind of memorial holiday. And it's actually the first time in about 
16 years that the extended family has been back at the villas all together. And that time shift thing's a huge part of the, the yeah. narrative, isn't it? A really brilliantly structured narrative, really very well done indeed. It's, it's the, part of the reason it's been, there is this time shift, is they've, they've not been there because it's the, uh, the matriarch of the family uh, has not had sufficient guilt leverage um, to get everybody. She's been dying to get everybody back together at this, these villas that they used to go to, but the, they, they won't all get together. Uh, and now that Max has died, she uses that to yeah. uh, kind of guilt trip them all to going. But the, the reason they've not been there, really, for, for 16 years together, is also the reason the family are quite famous. And it's something that Amanda doesn't know about because she, um, she's Canadian. And it's that in 2002, uh, Max's granddaughter, Neve, tragically fell off a cliff into the sea uh, and, and died. And that is, um, the, 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 the tragedy has cast a shadow over the family, but more so because it's where the, it's the Algarve, where the Mediterranean meets the Atlantic, where there's strong tides and currents. And so the body was never found. And is there a touch nature, of can kicking well, around there in the background? Yeah, yeah nature abhors a vacuum, but yeah. conspiracy theorists, theorists yeah, love yeah, one. Love them. Yeah. So when there's no body and there's no resolution, yeah. um, the family are subject to an awful lot of suspicion and innuendo, and they become almost public property. They become yeah. part of a media storm. And it wasn't, as you say, that the, the shadow of Madeleine McCann yeah. is cast over this no, book. Stress, it isn't remotely you know, a retelling of that story. It's not no, that, it, but, but that's in the background, isn't it? It was that... You refer to it, actually, in the book. I actually... The reason I, I set the book in Portugal was not because of the Madeleine McCann story. It was that that's where I went my holidays for, like, 20 years. <laughs> I, I've, it's where I, my, I've been going on holiday regularly. Uh, and funnily, of, of all the places... I've probably been about 20 times to Praia de Luz. Oh, yeah. Um, and so nice I had been going there a lot before the Madeleine McCann story happened. And I think if I'd come up 15 years ago, if you come up with a, a novel, a story about a child that goes missing, mm. nobody would compare it to a specific case. Mm. But that, when I realised I could set it somewhere else to avoid the comparison, then I thought, this is really what it should be about. You know, it should, in a way, it's not my dramatisation of what I think happened to Madeleine McCann by any stretch no, of the imagination. No means. It's about what it does to a family that are at the heart of that media storm, that are subject to suspicion and innuendo, and not just from the outside world, because there's a lot of bad blood within the family. There's a lot of mutual suspicion. That's the reason they haven't all been back to these villas in 16 years, because uh, they all have a lot of tension between themselves. Let's talk a bit more about that in a moment. Let's talk conspiracy theory in a moment. But you're going to do a, a reading for yeah, us, Chris, from, um, from the from the book, if you'd be, be so kind. Yeah, um, I, as I said, the, uh, the reason Max is so famous, um, it, it, or the reason Amanda's heard of him is that he, he has got a big public profile. And this is all because of a, a television appearance um, of his back in 2002. And he's on a kind of uh, late afternoon, daytime sort of chat show. Uh, and he's, he's Max's wife, uh, Celia is, is a, she was an actress and she was in a kind of um, 1970s shaky scenery science fiction show that uh, I called The Liberators um, as a, a, an allusion to Blake Seven and that kind of era of, of, of wobbly cardboard scenery science fiction. And Max uh, 
for a long time, she was the famous one uh, until Max became famous as a, 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 as a pop scientist. But Max's first book was written with one of her co-stars on The Liberators, who then became a, a TV presenter. And he was, Max was brought in essentially to bring some gravitas and authority to it. Uh, and so they're, they're on this um, chat show to publicise this. And I'm going to stand up to you because I don't mm. like reading sitting down. And the, the presenter's called Abby. Abby wraps up the discussion of Behind the Mask, that's the name of their, their, their psychology book, and they shuffle along the settee to make room for the next guest. She introduces him as Toby Cutler Wood and informs the viewers that he is a former police detective. He's a slim, white-haired man in a three-piece suit whom Ivy suspects is affecting to look like an academic. As an ex-cop, he should have read the evidence in front of him and deduced that the presence of a genuine academic meant it was a bad night for pretending to be something that you're not. Since retiring from the police six years ago, Toby has turned his detective skills to uncovering a different kind of fraud on a quite startling scale. Toby is here to tell us about The Apollo Conspiracy, his best-selling book claiming that the moon landings never happened but were actually faked by NASA. The screen is briefly filled with a photograph of the surface of the moon, a lunar lander in the right of the foreground, an American flag erected to the left. Beyond the horizon, all is black. And that is what Toby is focused on. What's wrong with this picture? There are no stars. There should be thousands of stars visible. The very reason the Hubble telescope was put into orbit is that the view of the cosmos is so much clearer beyond the atmosphere. And yet, in this image, supposedly taken from the surface of the moon, there is not a single solitary star. He talks excitedly about how the solar wind trapped in the Earth's magnetic field has created a series of high radiation zones known as the Van Allen belts, extending for 40,000 miles. Not only would this radiation damage the scientific instruments that would have been crucial to a moon mission, he informs Abby, but it would prove lethal to the personnel. And do you notice the dust and the footprints in the dust? The Apollo landing module had a rocket to slow its descent, delivering 10,000 pounds of thrust, which should not only have left a scorched crater, but blown all of the dust away too. NASA faked up what they thought we imagined the surface of the moon to look like, but forgot about the impact their own vehicle would have had. They were sloppy, but the insulting thing is that they clearly think we're all stupid. The focus is still on Toby, but Dad's voice, I, I forgot to say, this is from the point of view of, of uh, Ivy, uh, who's watching this video um, 16 years later on a plane. She's never actually seen it. It's the thing her, her father's famous for, but she's, for various reasons, at the time when it was broadcast, she was, she was in a bad place in her life, and now on her way to this memorial holiday, she's watching it with a gin and tonic on the plane. The focus is still, in, in, so Ivy, it's her father, uh, is, is Max. The focus is still on Toby, but Dad's voice cuts across from off-camera in a tone so familiar that sitting on a plane 16 years later, Ivy can't help but let out a chuckle. I'm sorry, but this is just the most preposterous garbage. <laughs> Abby's instincts prompt her to reassert control and calmly defuse the situation. Now, Max, she says, like she's humorously telling him off, it may seem shocking, but you can't argue with the evidence. That's when Dad weighs in more forcefully. No, the problem is that you can't argue with the evidence. You don't know which questions to ask, which is not your fault because you haven't been briefed properly, but that's what this gentleman is relying upon in order to con you and your viewers. At this point, Abby must have got a message in her ear from her producer to let this play because she suddenly goes from trying to break up the fight to holding the jackets. <laughs> 
She looks to Dad with an inviting expression. What questions would you like to ask? It is the moment that changed Max Temple's entire career. Ivy remembers how the phrase became something of a meme, a line people quoted when someone's been getting away with their bullshit for too long, but their easy ride is about to end. What questions would you like to ask? Because there are 10 minutes of the show left to run, and until the credits roll, this poor bastard is trapped in Max's house. <laughs> Just to be clear, you're saying the brightest scientific minds at NASA concocted the greatest hoax in human history, faked the lunar surface on a soundstage somewhere in order to produce these photos and television broadcasts, but forgot to put stars in the pictures. I said they were sloppy, Toby replies. I worked 20 years as a detective, and if there was one thing I learned, it was that when you're making up a lie, you will inevitably get tripped up on the detail. That's what happened here. Hence, no stars. <sighs> there are no stars in the photo because here on Earth, nitrogen molecules in the air scatter the sunlight so that by the time it reaches us down here, it looks like it's coming from every direction at once rather than a straight line from the sun. On the moon, there is no air, meaning the sky is black even in daytime. If you're trying to take a photograph of your fellow astronaut who's brightly lit by the sun, you need a short exposure time. Photographing stars requires long exposures. If you were to go outside tonight and take a picture of the sky using the same settings the astronauts used, there would be no stars in that picture either. This isn't rocket science, it's basic photography. <laughs> Toby looks suddenly pleased, animated in a way that suggests he's about to spring a gotcha. In that case, in the absence of scattered light, how come the areas in shadow are not totally black? In the single most famous photograph of the Apollo missions, we see Buzz Aldrin standing on the surface, lit by the sun behind and to the right, which we can tell by the shadows. The director is on the ball. The photo appears on screen even as Toby is still speaking. So if the sun is behind him, how come we can see Neil Armstrong and the lunar lander reflected in his visor? There is clearly a second light source nearby. Are you saying they brought a spotlight to the moon for taking photos? Abby looks impressed by this counterpunch. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know Dad. There is a second light source. The surface of the moon is highly reflective. Sunlight bounces off it. That's why you can see the bloody moon. <laughs> Any astronomer could tell you that the full moon is not merely twice as bright as the half moon, but ten times brighter. This is because of a phenomenon known as backscatter. Well, these properties all sound suspiciously convenient, Toby counters. Uh. But you can't argue with the harsh fact that the Van Allen belt... Dad cuts him off, the camera panning straight to him. It's like he's hosting the show at this point, and Abby is one of his guests. Clearly, the director is loving him. What do you know about the trajectories of the Apollo missions, Mr. Cutlerwood? Toby looks rattled by having been given such a direct question. What would be the point of me studying theoretical trajectories for a mission that never took place? The point would be that the trajectories were plotted so that the spacecraft only glanced the very inside edge of the inner belt, minimising the astronauts' exposure to the radiation. They spent most of the mission in the outer belts, where the levels are not so high, and the metal walls of the spacecraft protected them from the worst of it. I mean, honestly, did you do any research that might contradict your theory? It seems clear to me that you started with your conclusion and then merely conducted a search for evidence in support of it, which would suggest that every criminal conviction your investigative abilities were instrumental in securing should now be ripe for appeal. <laughs> we have reached this age where Abby feels the need to rescue the guys. He's starting to look punch drunk. I'm afraid we're almost out of time, yeah. Max, but it's been a fascinating discussion, so a special thank you to our guests tonight, Max Temple, Jason Cale and Toby Cutler-Wood. 
Though the camera pulls out to show all three guests on the sofa, Toby is the one to which the viewer is drawn, looking hollowed out and blank-eyed. It's an image which has reappeared on social media since Dad died, rediscovered by a new generation, a picture synonymous with abject defeat. Ivy closes the laptop and downs the rest of her gin in one go. She reflects on Dad's words to Abby about how seductive conspiracy theories could be. He went on to build a career talking and writing about this because it fascinated him far more than merely debunking the theories themselves. As a psychologist, he understood how much easier it is to fool people than convince them they've been fooled. That it is possible to sell an enduring lie because once people invest enough of themselves in it, they will continue to believe in the face of overwhelming contradictory evidence. Right down the years, Ivy has been paying attention and taking notes. You can't pull off what she had unless you've learned from the best. Terrific. Great. I'm going to come up very shortly to the audience, so you know, prepare, get your questions ready, and a Mars bar for the best one, and all, all, all that sort of thing. But let's let's do a bit on this conspiracy theory stuff, because I recall you wrote a book in which you were talking about psychics and, and mystics and mediums and all that sort of thing. You concluded it was all mints, and it was all, <laughs> and, and it was all about the money. I guess you're similarly sceptical about conspiracy theorists. Yeah, um, there's a uh, David Aronovich's book, um, uh, is it Voodoo Histories. Uh, he uses the line that conspiracy theories, or uh, it's um, history as written by the losers. Uh. Um, and, but, um, which is not to say there's no such thing as a conspiracy. Is that th I think the definition of a conspiracy theory is um, a theory that people prefer to believe when there's already uh, a, a satisfactory explanation supported by evidence. Yeah. Um, and in this book, I wanted to look at the I suppose that it was the, the Madeleine McCann case, again, that, that there's so many conspiracies around that, that um, what, what it comes down to, I think, is the absence of a satisfying conclusion. Yeah. Um, and I read uh, a lot about the psychology behind conspiracy theories, which is fascinating because a lot of it comes from the very same mental shortcuts that we require in order to understand the world, the shortcuts that serve us well most of the time. Sometimes they don't serve us so well. Uh, and uh, an example is um, something called proportionality bias. Uh, and that's the way by which we, we generally understand that a large outcome requires a large cause. Mm -hmm. uh, and that most of the time we're right about that, but sometimes it's not true. And we expect it to be true. So um, th there was a, a psychologist who observed taxi drivers in New York off duty and they were playing a, a dice game involving chucking dice at a wall. And he noticed that if they were trying to throw a high number, they would throw the dice really hard. Yeah. And try to throw a low number, they would throw it softly. Uh, because we have this notion that large outcome requires large effort. Uh, and it's the same thing when you take something like Princess Diana dies. We assume there has to be a large uh, be cause behind it. It can't story. just be yeah. drunk driver, not wearing a seatbelt, etc. Yeah. We require a big story. And when you get something like the Madeleine McCann story, as we, the further it goes, the longer it goes on without a resolution, yeah. the bigger we need the final answer to be. So it's got to the stage where I think if we ever find out what happened to Madeleine McCann, the answer is going to have to involve aliens, <laughs> you know, in order to yeah. satisfy people because the story has become such a big part of their life. Yeah. And that's, I suppose, one of the things Fallen Angel deals with is that the, the need for us to create our own narrative and then 
the way we, we just support that narrative ourselves, whether that's, uh, there's something, another psychological uh, phenomenon that gives rise to conspiracy theories is called compensatory control. Uh, and it's that we, we're, we're afraid of chaos and we, we would actually prefer uh, the idea that there are malevolent forces controlling everything than that there is no control, um, that, that, that shit happens, essentially. Uh, and I think what happens is we, often with, with a crime, especially when there's not a resolution, but even when there is a resolution, we want a, a narrative that reassures us that it wouldn't happen to us. Uh -huh. That's why there's so much moral opprobrium, I think, placed on the McCanns in terms of people telling themselves, well, I wouldn't have done that with my children. Yeah. They need to tell themselves that this tragedy wouldn't happen because but you need that sense them. of yeah. control. Yeah. 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 And it's the same way, uh, it doesn't take a, a, a case that requires a conspiracy. You know, so often if there's an apparently random murder in the street, Everyone feels that bit better when it's later re revealed to be gang-related, you know, or, or drug-related or something, because people can say, well, I'm not involved in that, so it wouldn't happen to me. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's the, um, the reassurance side of it. I think that the book also wants to look at the, um, the way in which we do a lot of harm when we decide for ourselves that that's the story that, that we're sticking to. Yeah. Uh, and, and that we won't open our minds to contradictory evidence. There's a, there's a contemporary version of, you know, that, that thing you read there is, is uh, nonsense being challenged by fact, but there's a contemporary version of that, a developing contemporary version of that, which is the, the assertion that, that everyone is entitled to their point of view, which is true, but it, it almost comes to the point through the, the stuff that's printed online of being a complete denial of, of, of the possibility of objective truth. All, the, yeah. all, all there are are standpoints. I think that, that sense of the, almost like what they call the 50-50 fallacy, the idea that the truth must lie somewhere in between, mm -hmm. and then it's always a spectrum. There's always a spectrum, but sometimes the, the spectrum is calibrated between something that's objectively true and something that's objectively false. Yeah. You know, just because there are two opposing points of view does not mean no. those opposing points of view are both valid. No. Um, and I, th I think in, in the, the, the... But we're getting to that point, aren't we? You, you, you're entitled to your point of view. The fact that it's demonstrably tripe is, 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 is not, not, not... Yeah, it yeah. It, it's, at all. And I, I think that's, um, that's why in this book it's, it's, it's about looking at the evidence uh, and the, the fact that some theories are supported by evidence and some are not. Uh -huh. uh, and you have to be prepared to accept, accept it when the evidence is telling you you're wrong. Uh, and I, I think, I sometimes wonder if this, I, I'm the classical example of the, the de definition of a liberal as being someone who's too broad-minded to take his own side in an argument. And that I'm, I'm kind of, um, I'm always excited by the possibility that all my assumptions are wrong, are wrong you know, that, yeah. that, because that makes the world interesting. Yeah. Um, but some people will, will not move, the, the needle will not move no matter how much evidence because they become invested. They're, this, yeah. In this, this day and age, your identity becomes invested in what you believe. And I think you we challenge the conspiracy theory, how you're part of you're it. Part got, of, I've got you as well. Yeah. Or what we're seeing, I think, uh, with, with Brexit and with, with Trump is that you're actually seeing people who I think are posturing in that they are professing to believe things that they don't even believe because it's kind of owning the libs. You know, it, it's, it's the posturing itself becomes almost like a point of tribal identity. Uh, and, and that's really dangerous. But sitting here as a, as a crime writer, I have to put my hand up and say that crime fiction is culpable uh, wow. in conspiracy theories because we do give you a resolution. Um, and it's fair enough because a lot of the time the resolution uh, in a, a, a crime uh, is satisfactory. 
Um, but it's not the resolution itself in crime fiction that's culpable, it's the twist. Mm. Because in a way, that what we love about the twist is we've come to understand the world of a book and then if there's a good twist, it changes the meaning of everything and it's really exciting and it's the same thing, apparently you get an endorphin release like when you read the twist in a book, but you also get an endorphin release when you read a conspiracy theory. Oh. You hear a conspiracy theory that suggests what you previously believed might be wrong. And I think when you, you get a, 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 a twist like that in, in a book, that's fantastic, but conspiracy theories offer the same thing. They say the version you've heard that you previously believed is wrong. There's, there's a, a different way of looking at it, but usually not, supporting, not supported by evidence. And it's like the Kennedy, Kennedy assassination is such a... a a great example of it because it's got to the stage where if you say that you believe in the Warren report, that starts to sound like an arcane point of view. <laughs> yeah. um, but a great example of it is the fact that people will, will cite, I think it's like there's, I don't know if it's 25 witnesses or whatever that say they heard uh, more than three shots. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like a big number and everyone says, well, that sounds, you can't ignore that. And then you see that 85% of witnesses said they heard exactly three yeah. shots. You know, it, it, this willingness to ignore it, uh, ignore it because there's a buzz about the sense of occult information. It's a bit of fun, yeah. And or, or, or you feel like an insider, you feel, you feel like you're we, an we, elite or something. But also, the, the thing we're just saying about people won't uh, always look at the, the evidence or, or won't contradict what they've come to believe. Yeah. We do that in, uh, in crime fiction too, in that this is a very twisty, turny book. Um, you will change your mind a lot about what you think is going on and who, who done it. But I'll bet when it gets to the end, you'll say, ah, yeah, I thought it was her, stroke him. <laughs> because what happens is all the way through, you might have 14 different points of view and you edit out 13 of them. You know, you conveniently, we all do it. We all sort of, we, you know, we entertain multiple notions because usually because the author wants us to. But by the time we get to the end, we say, yeah, I kind of thought it would be that. Uh, I, th I thought it would be that. And, that, that's about as much as I can actually say about the book because it's a, yeah. it's a very spoiler-sensitive book. Yep. All I can say is that there'll be a, at least two moments in it where you will go, Ooh, fuck. <laughs> right? And also there's a possibility that you might cry. So two fucks and a cry. That's, right? that's, that's my sales pitch. It's not bad. It's not bad. Down the... <laughs> I mean, that's... That's a good Saturday night by anybody's standards, yeah. I would say. <laughs> Down the years, I've occasionally had news editors, editors come up to me and something they've seen on the wires or these days, even, even worse, possibly online, they say, what about this, Brian? What about this? I say, that's a great story. That is a brilliant. You should definitely run that. And then as they walk away contentedly, I say, by the way, it's complete garbage from beginning to end. And mine's, mine's just true, but run that one. That's a great story. Go, go, <laughs> go with that. It's far better. I'm going to go out to the audience now and get some questions on anything and everything, whatever you... Goodness me. Goodness me, there's hundreds of you out there. Gosh, you, 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 you were all in, all in, in dark and gloom. Who, who's first? Hundreds of them, but will they raised? answer? Will they ask a question? Hand raised there, please, if we can get a mic. Any others? Let's take some, some other hands as well, please. Yes, please, thanks. Hi, Chris. Uh, apart from the Rangers big tax case, what's your favourite Scottish conspiracy? <laughs> <laughs> I think is that I don't really subscribe to many. I think what I used to, growing up, um, uh, I... I, I a Catholic school and hearing all the Celtic sports conspiracy theories about Scottish football and I used to think it's not a very successful conspiracy theory you know conspiracy given the number of trophies your Keep club winning, has, ho yeah, yeah, has hoovered yeah, up yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Could, could my club be subject to that kind of oppression yeah, please yeah. no that's right I mean, certainly, certainly for, for, for my team currently suffering and languishing in, in lower leagues we always say you have to factor in the last minute penalty from, from, from Rangers or Celtic you know but uh, 
But sorry if you're Rangers or Celtic fans, but just sorry generally, actually, if you're Rangers. <laughs> let's, let's take another, another question. Who's, who's next? I had the, I had the pleasure of um, seeing St Martin win yesterday against Aberdeen. It was, well a, it was not enough just to say it was worth waiting for. Uh, it was worth going twice for because I actually turned up on Saturday, not realising the, <laughs> the game had been moved. And I parked in Albion Street and I'm walking thinking, I could have parked much closer to the ground. There's hardly any cars here. Then it suddenly dawned Pretty on poor me. crowd. What are they doing? Yeah. Support? <laughs> I'd have thought more folk would be down from Aberdeen. It's yeah, early in the yeah, season. Yeah, yeah. That was a good victory, by the way. Well done. Yeah. yeah yes, please. Uh, as a Partick Thistle supporter, I feel oh. sorry for all of you here. Dear, but dear. Uh, dear, dear, dear. my question is: the, rags. the theory of proportionality. I just wondered if you thought that, given death is the the mystery that we all eventually have to confront, do you see Same. religion as uh, part of the proportionality reaction to death? Um, that's a stutter of a question. Terribly, isn't it? Really, well, really good. Very philosophical. It yeah. probably, I think it probably is. I think you know our, our inability um, to contemplate the notion that there's nothing after death. Yeah. Um, in the same way that that it's the, the absence of resolution. Uh, when when in the in fallen angel there's the the absence of resolution for this family because the body's never been found and therefore people come up with their versions of it. Well, I suppose if we knew for sure what, ha you know, that there was what happened after death, there would be no area to speculate. But it's, it's the biggest area for speculation because there's absolutely no way of proving anybody's theory. Uh, and so if you can't subject it to the null hypothesis, <laughs> you know, until the day somebody comes back with, uh, with a, d a definitive answer, I think we're going to be waiting a long time for that one. Yeah. You see, you get that level of solemnity and gravity from, from years of watching the thistle, you know, I mean, that, that's, the, that's the, there's the result, you know, a really solemn, serious question. Who's, who's next? There's a, there's a hand raised there, please, if you can keep, keep the hand, hand up and the microphone will get, get your way. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Moving away from the football analogies, because I know yes. nothing about football whatsoever, um, I was very interested when you talked about the, the psychology of things and the, the signs behind the moon landings. You obviously have done quite a lot of research. Did you enjoy the research? Did you, did you actually want to do that? Or I mean, where did you start? Did you start with the research or did you start with the ideas that you were going to do the conspiracy theory? Um, I, I I didn't set out to write a book about conspiracy theories. You know, the, the idea, it was, the evolution of the, the novel was, was interesting to me in that I had this very simple capsule idea at first, which was uh, the idea of someone going missing in an airport. Because we've all had that experience. You're, you're traveling with someone. Mm. Um, you're maybe looking at magazines in, in, in W.H. Smith. You turn around, turn around again, and the person you're with is gone. Uh, and You'll see them again, you know, they're behind a pillar, they, they appear 10 seconds later, but sometimes within that 10 seconds, you know, if it, obviously if it's a child going missing, you, you have all sorts of disasters scenarios, but even if it's like your, your spouse and you can't see them, if you're, maybe it's not, maybe it's just me, you know, you've sort of <laughs> start imagining bizarre scenarios whereby they could have just disappeared from your life. Um, and, and I thought, well, that, that was the starting point, you know, what if someone just disappears in an airport? And I, I, I realised that I, I, I wasn't, going to be able to set an entire novel in an airport, uh, although I had a notion of doing that. But I, it was a, a result of working with my wife on the, the Ambrose Parry, um, the, the first Ambrose Parry novel, because of the way we'd come to work together, to sit down at the table and knock ideas back and forth. I sort of started with this idea and we sort of 
wrestled with this and, and evolved it into a question of uh, somebody going missing, but, the, but a, a family all going on holiday, or first of all, we thought they'd be going to a funeral, then we said, no, let's not make it a funeral. Let's have them all coming in from different places for a sort of memorial holiday. Um, and then when I, I decided it would be about a child having died and, and, and this never been resolved and the tension that would bring out in the family, mm-hmm. that that brought up the issue of the Madeleine McCann case and that led me into the area of conspiracy theories. But as a writer, you always, it's always a good idea to just create vehicles for your enthusiasms. Um, it's so nice it's not so much conspiracy theories as that, for instance, um, I'm a, a big um, fan of, of pop science and, and it's, it's led into books like Pandemonium and, and mm-hmm. Places in the Darkness. So I'd, I'd read a lot about... Um, astronomy generally, but, but things like the moon landings. Uh, and people get hung up on the moon landings because of the, the conspiracy. You know, there's something even far more bizarre uh, than the, the moon landings, if you want to really bake your noodle, is, uh, is the size of the moon. That, what, what they call the moon illusion is that sometimes you see the moon and it's, it looks massive, like a bomber's moon, as they call it. And other times it's, it's, it looks tiny. And it's all, not just that the moon itself is always the same size, but apparently if you see a bomber's moon and you went to your window and you drew this, the circumference of it, yeah. and then another night it was a tiny moon and you drew it, it would be exactly the same size. And astronomers don't know why this is. Psychologists don't know why this is. No one knows. They think it might be one of those strange things whereby it's to do with the, the way the human brain interacts with its environment, but nobody knows. And so this kind of thing always fascinated me. But certainly the moon landing conspiracy, it fascinated me that, that people would continue to believe it in the face of so much of contrary evidence. And it's always based on ignorance. It's always people will come up with some apparently fascinating but an, an intractable uh, piece of information such as there should be stars in the photograph. Uh, and is, is it defiant ignorance or is it a desire to be distinctive, uh, sort of the, the slight smile of, of superiority? Of, of I, I don't no, I do think people get intoxicated by it because one of the things I found in my research, and I didn't so much have to research the moon landings because I, I'd, I just had to go back and look at the books I'd already read about that, but it's that people who are uh, seduced by conspiracy theories, uh, they, they're not seduced by just one, they want them all. <laughs> and you'll find it would be, it was found that people who were, they, they, will, they will believe uh, multiple competing and contradictory conspiracy theories at the same time. So it was found that people who were inclined to believe that Osama bin Laden had been killed years ago and that he was faked in various videos, the same people would also believe that he wasn't killed in the raid that Obama oversaw. You know, so I think people get that buzz I was talking about, that, that endorphin rush, that people are seduced by that. Uh, I don't so much get the sense that it's, it's the, well, I'm in the know and you're not. It, it, there's often a thirst, uh, but, but there's the seduction of this occult information. But as I say, it's, it's a vehicle for me to, to pour in some of the stuff I'm fascinated by, hopefully without boring the arse off everybody about it. <laughs> so I was able to put a wee bit in there about that and, and, and some stuff in about the Kennedy assassination and a few other conspiracy theories, but the novel was not really a, a, about the, the detail of the theories, it's about our, our love for them. Okay, who's, who's next? Ah, right, right at the very back. Forgive me, but it's, it's always right. Yep, please. That's it. There we go. That's grand, thanks. Professor Sharp. Because I can see her from here. Oh, well, excellent. First class. Uh, um, a comment 
or actually a, a kind of request, first of all. I do hope your next book is going to be uh, Liberators, <laughs> so that we get to see the full series. Um, but you mentioned uh, Into Darkness, and uh, I, I couldn't help thinking about the setup of that book when you were talking um, about, uh, about the conspiracies. And that's, uh, that's really quite terrifying when we start thinking about um, AI and the control of AI. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the connection between those two books. Yeah, um, Places in the Darkness is, a, is my science fiction crime novel, um, my space noir. Um, and the, yeah, the, the, the technology in there that I was sort of speculating about uh, is, is, and I think this is probably not that far away. We're already starting to see experiments to do with this, which obviously right now we have things like, we've experimented with Google Glass, you know, the, um, ways to just read instantly to see information projected, but I thought, well, I would take it a stage further and that you instantly know it. And so in places in the darkness, people are having implants um, that allow them, allow non-native information, non-native memories to be instantly uploaded to your brain. Um, and there is what they call a watermarking effect so that you know it's a non-native memory. So it's things like, you know, if technical specifications because it's uh, essentially the, the book takes place in a space station that's like a giant building site and it's very helpful if you had that technical information um, but of course it would immediately be hacked and abused and if people can upload non-native memories and remove the watermarking how does that affect your free will if you think you're acting on the basis of, of your own experience your, your own memory uh, but it's not your memory it's something that's been been uploaded um, and you don't, you're not even aware of that um, because how could you know <laughs> what's, what's in your own memory if, it's, if it's, uh, the watermark's been taken off? And I suppose it's, it's, it's that fear of if you can't verify the veracity of the information that's in yes. your own head. You, you, you were talking earlier about the lunar thing. I, I couldn't help thinking of the dark side of the moon, the, the, the Floyd album. There's a line from that, there's someone in my head and it's not me. And that... that, that um, that struck me a little bit, a little bit there as well. I, I can't listen to that line without feeling a chill down the spine. I must, I must confess. Is that not just what happens when you're uh, when on broadcasting? You've got an earpiece. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I take them out from time. Is, is that a question? <laughs> yeah. Thanks very much. Thank you. Of the many books you've written, is there one that you're very fond of the most? Oh, well, good question. Um, as a good question, I. I was doing an event with another author who I won't name, um, and, and I said, uh, which we normally would if I asked such a question, that it's, that's kind of, it's a bit like asking to choose between your children. And this author said, the son. <laughs> um, but um, I, I kind of have a, I, I, there's, I've now written and co-written 24 books, so it's, a, and it's not a question of always loving the most recent one. There's certain books that I, I, I love for different reasons. Uh, so sometimes it's like I really loved writing it. And, and so I've got fond memories of that. So like one fine day in the middle of the night, I, I always have fond memories of writing that. Uh, actually, I remember being in, in the home straight of writing it when I was doing an appearance down here at Edinburgh in, in uh, would have been about 97 or 98. Uh -huh. I actually remember bumping into... Val McDermott is sitting up the back, uh, and she had just finished, and I f her, she just delivered her novel, and I felt horribly jealous, and I went home and had this yeah. absolute blitz in about four days, and wrote about 15,000 words, so that's why it's got a very pacey finale. Um, <laughs> so blame, blame Val for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there, there's, 
the Sacred Art of Stealing is one of my favourites as well because uh, I always wanted to write a rom-com, really. And, and, uh, but the book I'm most proud of, oddly enough, is one of the, probably the most atypical of my books, Pandemonium, which is a, a, a horror story, essentially. Uh, technically, it's a science fiction story, but it's a horror story. Uh, and I think it's that, as a writer, there's always that description. You know, people say things like, uh, every book is a failure, you know, there's a pompous <laughs> expressions you'll get. Yeah. But it is the case that every, every writer has some platonic ideal of a book that they start with and then write themselves further and further away from yeah. it. Uh, I'd say that Pandemonium was the one that was closest, you know, to what, that what was projected on the wall of Plato's cave was, you know, was closest to the reality. And it was partly because it had started as a screenplay and I had a, a, a very strong outline of it and I was able to work from that and, and write the novel. But also, I think thematically, I got in all the things I wanted to say. Uh, but ironically, it's now come full circle because it is, it's now, um, there is now a great screenplay, not by me, there's a, a screenplay of it by uh, writer-director called Gabriel Robertson, and it's, um, I'm not allowed to say, uh, but there's, there looks like there may, might be some very good big news about, about Pandemonium <laughs> um, that, that that film may I, actually I love your mention of a rom-com, like, you know, a, a, a Brookmire rom-com, you know, with, <laughs> with, with mayhem and mutilation about midway through, you know. But, well, that, I, that's how I used to, my, my um, sort of elevator pitch for uh, A Snowball in Hell was it was a rom-com with torture. <laughs> who's, who's next? Yes, please. Thank you very much. I'm kind of following on from what you've been talking about. Not favourite book, because you've kind of answered that. But you've written about quite a lot of strong female characters. Um, got a favourite? Why? Um, first thing I want to say is I'd love to be at an event where somebody... Get, I mean, I am really always appreciate the compliment, but I'd love to hear someone compliment someone for writing strong male characters. <laughs> you know, as in nobody ever says <laughs> to, to a, a, a woman writer, you write really strong male characters. I think it says an awful lot about uh, where we are in terms of that us guys, it's as if we deserve points for writing. Um, and, and actually, I think with what's been interesting for, for me recently is, is not so much writing the strong female characters. I think when people say that, what they really mean is convincing, uh, plausible female characters, because I think the problem is, as a, as a man, you've got to avoid writing women the way you'd like them to be. Uh, <laughs> Rather than at this point, I want to issue a warning to my colleague. You know, <laughs> steady now, son. Steady. <laughs> um, no, I, that's why I always welcome the compliment because that's where I think. Well, I'm, I'm telling the truth rather than telling the, the horrible male fantasy of, uh, of of what they they think women ought to be or, or how they what they give away uh, about themselves and how they, how they view women. But in, in a way, it's like you don't want to write the strong. It's not always the strong woman that, that's that's compelling. It's the it's the woman who's fucked up and messy and, and you know, uh, whose life is a shambles. So um, I always, uh, I mean, I only wrote about her in one book, but I loved writing about Jane Bell and uh, uh, all fun and games till somebody loses an eye. Um, just because I th that was a book that was essentially about motherhood um, rather than about espionage. Um, and obviously I, I, I had a great time writing um, Diana Yeager in Black Widow. Uh, obviously, it's not the book is not a bar barrel of laughs, but um, but she was she was a great character to, and, and it, it felt very empowering to write about a character like that when it's not clear whether she's the villain or the victim. 
So um, I, I think I, when it comes to my, my female characters, I just mainly endeavour to tell the truth. And that helps when you've grown up around, or if you grew up in the west of Scotland with the likes of my mother, my sister and my wife, um, who, are, who are disinclined to keep their mouth closed if you've got something wrong. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> They're inclined to tell you fairly abruptly, are they? I, I, I believe, um, Chris, you've been moving in uh, as, as a crime writer. You've been d discovering a new skill and a new... <laughs> or, uh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. A legend, uh, a legend in a different way. We, we, um, we have, as you may be aware, a, a crime writer's band, um, fun-loving crime writers, and um, which... Uh, our guitarist, Stuart Neville, who's here, um, I think, on the 22nd, um, under, I think he's here under his, his pseudonym, because he, he writes uh, fantastic novels of Stuart Neville, wrote The Twelve, which won the, the LA Times Book Prize, and, um, but he, he, and he wrote So Say the Fallen, but he also writes as Hale and Beck, but it's best summed up, this band, in, in that um, Stuart had a t-shirt made recently, which says, best midlife crisis ever. <laughs> um, as we, we've, got, we've got Stuart on lead guitar, and Stuart's a phenomenal guitarist. We've got uh, Doug Johnston, who's also at the festival. I think he was here already. Uh, whose novel Breakers is just one of the best uh, crime novels published this year. Um, Doug plays drums. We have Luca Vesti, who wrote The Bonekeeper on, on bass. Mark Billingham on rhythm guitar and vocals. Myself on rhythm guitar and vocals. And Val McDermott on lead vocals. And uh, we, we've pl last year we played about 13 festivals, um, book festivals, and this summer we played the Glastonbury Festival. Uh, <laughs> which was, uh, people kept saying, oh, well, that must have been on the bucket list. It was so out there, it wasn't on MD's bucket list. It was, <laughs> it was just one of those things. Uh, Mark, got the, uh, Mark Billingham got the, the invitation for us to play, and he had to send us an email that was headlined, the subject line was, this is not a joke. <laughs> Uh, so we, we played the Glastonbury Festival, we played the Cornbury Festival the week after, which is known as Posh Stock. Um, it's near Chipping Norton. And it was, it was tremendous, great fun. We, had, we actually had um, a bigger crowd there than at Glastonbury because there was less competition. We'd about, and it's weird that people would just come and see and if they like it, they stay. And we had about 2,000 people by the end wow. um, all bopping away. What sort but of stuff do you play? It's all covers and it's all um, crime and murder themed. That's it. <laughs> So it's songs like I Fought the Law and Watching the Detectives, uh, um, Back on the Chain Gang. Uh, so it is anything with a crime theme we can, we can yeah. crowbar into. Who's it. going to be the first to write the novel about, you know, the band? They're in the green room well, and they find a, a headless corpse and it turns out well, to be the drummer or something like that. You know? I've already written a novel about a band on the road, oh, so yeah, I, I was yeah, ahead yeah, of the yeah, curve. Yeah. Um, we, we, um, but we, the most, we do do one song uh, about our day job and... Uh, with the most Val had the most bizarre interlude. This young woman came up to her. Oh, uh, she must have been an adolescent, maybe in 19 or 20, and said, oh, you guys were amazing. That was fantastic. And that was so witty. That song you came up, you, you guys did about yourselves, that was so witty that you'd written that. It was paperback writer. <laughs> <laughs> we're thinking, this girl's yeah, living watch, in the movie yesterday. We watched that movie, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, where, where they don't exist. Look, I think we've got time. We've got time. And we, we, we fun loving crime writers are at the um, the festival. We're at the Spiegel tent on the twenty third, Friday the twenty third. Typical and musician. He always plugging the next gig. You know. I don't know. But actually, I'll do that as well. Uh, Ambrose Parry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this tent Saturday night. 
Enough already. It's time for one, one more. I, please, uh, if we could get a microphone to our friend here, that would be great. Maybe, maybe, maybe two. Let's take this one and see how it goes. You just mentioned Ambrose Parry. I just wondered what was forthcoming. Uh, apart from Saturday night, 8.30 in this tent, um, the, yeah, the second Ambrose Parry novel was called The Art of Dying. Uh, and it's um, set in 1849, uh, a couple of years after the events of the first novel. Um, and it's, uh, if you want to know more, you know where to find me. And um, myself and Marissa will be only too happy to tell you all about it. But as a, but as a brief taste of what was it like what, writing with your, with your wife? How, how did it work? Were there, were there tensions and spats or was it all joy and light? Um, it was oh, you just do utterly you harmonious the ah, entire yeah. time. <laughs> no, um, my my um, favourite comment that Marissa made on stage in the past year was, uh, we were talking about how she's so fastidious in her research and obviously having been an anaesthetist for 20 years she knows her subject inside out and she has this very informed perspective on the whole thing and she was trying to express how um, she felt a, a, a degree of sympathy for, for me as the, the person who was just bringing this sort of storytelling chops to it and she was the, the one who was clued up. She didn't, just didn't choose her words perfectly well in front of a big audience she said yeah I feel sorry for Chris because I know all this stuff and he only knows what I've told him. <laughs> So, well, you, you could hardly you could hardly challenge her on the medical content anyway. That, that would be the fairly. I mean, that, that, when you talked about that, you know, being, being, being told a, a recall a story of there was a, a young minister in the, when, when Willie Ross. You know, I mean, remember Willie Ross? Yeah, you're all far too young. Secretary of State for Scotland, uh, very very fierce fierce character, but quite a quite a glowing figure as well. Like this young, I think it was Frank McElhone was was made a minister, and he came bouncing into Willie's office. This is great! This is great! Willie, I was brilliant. Oh, right, I'm going to be a minister. Right, right. What do I do next? And Willie didn't even look up from his book. He just said, "You do what you're dealt." <laughs> <laughs> I think some contemporary politicians could do with that ad advice. There's <laughs> time for one, squeeze in one more. If, if anybody's got a, a burning question that they care, care to ask, oh, there must be one, surely, surely. Yes, please, right in the front row. Hang on a wee second, the microphone is coming. We, we do this as a fitness programme for the staff here, by the way, so they can go, they can go bobbing around the, the hall. Yes, please, thank you. I apologise, first of all, it's not actually a question. Oh. more of a comment on the conspiracy theories. Oh. Because I have been seduced by one this very day. Jeffrey Epstein, did he commit suicide? Oh. Um, was one, one of his... You expect the music there, don't you? No, I don't. <laughs> no, I, I, um, it, it would be... The definition of conspiracy theory is when when we've already got all the information and someone comes along and, and wants to give us a, an occult alternative. I, I, I think, yeah, if, if, if you've got dirt on so, some of the richest, most powerful people in the world and you just suddenly die <laughs> uh, in, in, in a jail cell, I, I, I don't think that's the most uh, outlandish notion to think that there was, there was foul play. There's going to be the um, odd question or two raised, isn't there? Yeah. When, especially when your connections are so uh, exuberant yeah. as, as his appeared to be. Well, if, do you know, I was just thinking you're, you're always hostage to the final question, um, you know, which that, 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 was a that was, at least yeah, that one that was, was on topic. That was a good one, yeah. Um, you know, you, sometimes you, you get that kind of um, final question, it's like, do you write longhand? Um, and, <laughs> but I, I thought I'll just, just sort of finish things off by, uh, I've got this fantastic email that I got a wee while ago, um, just, I may have read this before, but it's just a, a, a great... I'm still thrown by it. It was this, somebody wrote to me and said, Dear Mr. Brookmeyer, I'm an avid fan of your writing. 
this was a few years ago, he said, having purchased all 15 of your books so far, and I think you're one of the best authors I've read, um, obviously there's going to be a buck coming. <laughs> uh, and he said, I purchased Bedlam on Friday and started reading yesterday. I'm very disappointed that you seem to feel the need to do the same as just about everyone else at the moment and use the C word in your writing. And I am not particularly po-faced about swearing. They always tell you they don't have a problem with swearing when they're writing to you to complain about you swearing. He said, I'm more disappointed that you're doing the same as everyone else using a so-called taboo word to juice up your writing. Um, I do hope you're not using the C word because you feel it will improve your writing or make it more edgy and or fashionable because it genuinely does not. <laughs> Yours, name redacted. And I, I replied because I was hugely intrigued in my reply. Dear name redacted, I am disappointed that your enjoyment of bedlam has been diminished by the use of a word you find particularly offensive. We all have our triggers and our sensibilities, and the C-bomb remains a word that many readers have a problem with. I do hope this won't lose me a reader. You always have to keep them on side. <laughs> However, what somewhat confuses me about your email is that you state you've purchased and enjoyed all 15 of my books so far. I've just spent five minutes running a search on the computer for instances of the offending word in all of my manuscript files. And here are the results. In chronological order. <laughs> um, I'll just give you selected highlights. Uh, quite ugly one morning, 14. Uh, one fine day in the middle of the night, 23. Uh, the high watermark is a tail etched in blood and hard black pencil, 65. <laughs> Bedlam, the book she was writing to me about, one. <laughs> Obviously, it was a belter. <laughs> So I finished off by saying, as you can see, this word has been appearing frequently and consistently in my work since the beginning. I'm not being facetious when I say that under the circumstances, I would genuinely love to know how you failed to notice or be offended by more than 250 uses of it across the body of my previous work. Yours, Chris Brookmeyer, and I have been yours, Chris Brookmeyer. Thank you very much. We're going to, going to pop, pop next door to the, to the book signing tent. If you give us a couple of seconds to get out there, please come through and buy books in vast numbers and get Chris to sign them. But will you join me again in thanking Chris Brookmeyer? Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and keep up to date on events, booking information and more by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search at EdBookFest. The Edinburgh International Book Festival takes place every August in Charlotte Square Gardens.